This podcast is not safe for work and will feature movie spoilers. It will feature scenes described of a graphic nature. It will contain language which most listeners may find offensive. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is another In Reverence episode. This is In Reverence episode number 12. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. On this In Reverence episode we are casting our eye to the masterpiece of kind of psychosis of dreamlike terror um, from the great director Nicholas Roge. This movie is Don't Look Now. This one has been on the list for some time. In fact, when I originally brought together the idea of doing In Reverence, this was one of the titles that I definitely, firmly had in mind. Now, if this is your first time checking out an In Reverence episode on Podcast Under the Stairs, you might be confused as to what you're hearing. Let me spell it out for you. This is a small vanity project within Podcast Under the Stairs. This is a, a project that allows me to explore the movies that shaped my love of horror cinema. Now, you could be saying to yourself, Duncan, isn't that what you do on every episode anyways? You pick a movie, you talk about it, and you let us know whether or not you liked it. No, 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 no. That is what I do there. In Reverence is purely looking at movies that had an impact for the positive uh, in one direction or the other. It could be, you know, a, a specific filmmaker. It could be a performance. It could be the way a movie shot, a specific subgenre, a title connects with me that gets me into that subgenre. Um, it could be a number of different things and we've covered a multitude of movies up to this point. Everything from foreign horror cinema to classic titles to brand new titles um, to icons of the industry to lesser known found footage. We've done a lot and it had been planned for this week in particular, the week that we'll be doing Movie Club with the listener reviews of Mask of the Red Death, uh, a movie which was um, which had cinematography done by Nicholas Roge, was to double up this week and do a double bill of Nicholas Roge. So you would have that drop in on Thursday, but today you would have uh, Don't Look. Now, sadly, we found out on Saturday, so a couple of days ago, that Nicholas Roge had passed away at the age of 90. Um, and it hit me because I am a big fan of his work. I mean, I could easily pick about three or four Nicholas Roge titles with, you know, with relative ease as impacting my love of cinema. Not even necessarily horror cinema, but my love of cinema. And I spoke about some of his movies out with the confines of horror on different shows, uh, Duncan and Bo. Uh, come correct, did an episode where we discussed Walkabout, which is a movie that I think is absolutely fucking incredible. Um, 
Uh, when I've done Chronicle in the past, uh, Chronicle Season 2, I think, it was Season 2, had me discussing The Witches, which I think is a movie that even though I saw at the age of, what, 12, 11, 12, still scared the bejesus out of me. Um, that's right, give a kid's movie to the don't look now guy. That's how you terrify a generation, ladies and gents. Maybe it still is one of the scariest kids' movies ever made, I think, personally, in my opinion. Um, but Don't Look Now is a movie that I have reevaluated and reevaluated and reevaluated um, almost every decade. And I've always loved it, but the movie has changed with me changing through life. And I think that is a testament to amazing filmmaking and just how we view cinema with the backdrop of the experiences we go into with our own life um, and the outcomes we take, the, the, the messages we take from those movies and carrying onwards. It is a hugely influential movie within the genre. It is a titan amongst other titles. It is up there with the best the genre has ever produced um, from arguably the greatest decade of horror ever, the 70s. And I'm looking forward to discussing it on this In Reverence episode. But before we get to that, as always, some information about what's coming in the rest of the week. Now, you will have heard me say it, but Movie Club is coming out on Thursday, which means you've got up until Wednesday to submit your Mask of the Red Death reviews. They're not in by Wednesday, you ain't going to be on the show. There's about six reviews in, I would love to get it to double figures. So come on, four more reviews, get us up to ten, give us a nice episode for everyone to listen to. That movie is fucking bitching anyway. You know what it is, go and sit down and watch it, submit your reviews in. And then on Sunday, it is the next instalment of our 88 Films Italian Collection series, looking at Short Night of the Glass Dolls by Aldo Lado, disc number 21. So we have a jam-packed week for you with awesome content. We are covering 70s Psychedelica um, and weird dreamy trippy logic horror. Uh, We are covering Mask of the Red Death. We are going kind of Paul Corman, Vincent Price, dripping in colour. And then we're going to be finishing off with arguably one of the best Jallos I think personally. I think it's so underrated with maybe one of the best endings in a Jallo I've ever seen. So yeah, you're going to get a lot from this episode, ladies and gents, and this week as well. So, let's take a break. You are going to hear promos for shows that I love. You're going to hear the trailer for In Reverence, episode number 12's movie selection. It's Don't Look Now by Nicholas Roge. When I return, I'm discussing that movie right after this. Hey, feeling down? Feeling low? Not enough podcasts about movies in your life? Why not try... They must be destroyed on sight! The new Podcast Cure-All. Sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living. We have exploitation. We have Italian horror. We have zombies. We have slashers. We have crime films. We have spaghetti westerns. We even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts... Lee Russell, Daniel Harper... Paul Romali and the odd guest host Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening.
My sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. Christine. John, do you hear what I say? It was Christine. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the grave. Yes. Christine is dead. Yes. She is dead. Yes. Dead, 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 dead. What is it, Mr. Baxter? What is it you fear? My, my wife was warned that, that I was in danger. Welcome back. So you just heard the trailer for Don't Look Now from 1973, directed by Nicholas Rose. Screenplay uh, was done by Alan Scott, uh, based on the Daphne du Maurier short story. Now, the movie stars Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland, Hilary Mason, Celia Mantania, Massimo Serrato, uh, Renato Scarpa, um, we have David Tree and Rye. We have Sharon Williams, Nicholas Slater, um, Bruno Cataneo, and the synopsis for this one is listed on IMDb as a married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters, one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. So, um, let me just set this up for you. So the first time I saw Don't Look Now, I was... Oh, early teens. This is an early teen watch for Duncan. Um, and, I mean, it worked for me on one level, this movie. The one level it worked for me on was the thing that's happening in the background. Right, now, there's talk all the way through this movie, especially when the characters are in Venice, of this uh, these killings, this, this series of killings that's happening. Um, and the police are desperately trying to track down who is behind this killing and young me dug into that pretty pretty hard you know what I mean that was the bit that interested me as a kid was there's a killer killing people this is like a slasher movie I can't wait to see it but you see no killing 
So, you know, you wander around this movie, um, kind of following these characters. One of these guys I've seen before from the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, and that was a great movie that I saw about this time, and he's a great actor, and through time I start to learn that he's Donald Sutherland, and he's a phenomenal actor, and, you know, I, I start to get behind that, but at this point I'm not really interested in what they're doing. I'm interested in who the killer is, what's happening in the background, why are we following this wounded couple when we should be focusing on the killer, because that's what horror movies do. Horror movies focus on the killer. The killer's going to kill someone and our hero's going to save the day, because that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do in horror movies. Um, and the reveal in this movie is terrifying uh, to a kid who did not expect what would turn around in the jacket. Um, and that's kind of my first impressions of the movie and it was the, the, the impression that stuck with me for the longest time until I revisited it in my 20s and when I revisited it in my 20s it was a different take on the movie completely, the different take on the movie now was it was about the, the kind of dreamlike quality so this is Duncan at his stage where he's starting to really get into Argento, really starting to get into Italian cinema He's really starting to get into Jallo and, you know, the, the, the sub-genres that come out of of the Italian works of the 70s, you know, 80s, late 60s. And so this movie starts falling in that camp. It's disjointed, but it's deliberately disjointed. It's disjointed because Jallo's are disjointed and it's beautifully shot because Jallo's are beautifully shot. And maybe this Nicholas Roche guy... Um, in 1973 he had seen a couple of Bava movies and that's where he was leaning towards but you know the 20 year old well the guy in his 20s watching this movie wasn't as interested about the killer in the background anymore and was more interested about the you know this couple's relationship and the weird happenstance that was coming from this kind of almost Rosemary's Baby-esque set up of the movie you know the kind of dreamlike quality that Rosemary's Baby has is also here in Don't Look Now the psychic sisters and you know the reveal there, the warning that is not taken heed, all these things are where 20 year old Duncan takes it and you know I come away from it appreciate the movie on a completely different level at that part, I love it you know even more than I did the first time I watched it now swinging to Duncan in his 30s, he's now a father, he's got a daughter himself, and he's a more kind of fully-fledged horror fan, he's seen a lot more, he's got his own podcast now, and he's revisiting the movie like Don't Look Now again, and his opinion of the movie is still that he very much loves it, he thinks it's one of the greatest things ever, but he starts to realise that this movie is oh so clever than he ever thought, so much going on in here that he never understood and the internet is a great tool I mean um, there is a great interview I recommend that you all go and check it out with uh, Nicholas Rose and uh, Mark Kermode from a few years ago actually where they're discussing the opening sequence I Don't Look Now and how basically it is essentially a seven minute setup for the entire film it is a mirror image of what happens in the entire film everything that happens in the entire film is is kind of laid out there including Donald Sutherland basically saying that things are not what they seem or you know you shouldn't trust your eyes or whatever the specific line is which sets out the whole story that we then follow through 
for the rest of the movie. But where I think the movie shines, and we are going to get into a proper synopsis, but where I think the movie shines for me as an older guy with a kid now is the way the portrayal of grief is handled in this movie. Um, wholly authentic. And this idea of a couple trying to repair a marriage post, you know, losing a child in a tragic way through, you could argue, negligence um, and going to one of the most romantic cities in the world and taking their baggage and grief with them, um, which ultimately has an impact in their stay over there against the background of this killing in a world where men are seen as rational, academic people um, who, you know, will, you know, with the power of the brain and logic and rationale will, will you know, push this story forward and we will get through this because all we need is this time and a mother who is, um, you know, captivated by this story, this warning kind of heeded towards her by this psychic from beyond the grave from potentially her daughter um, and the academic doesn't listen he's full full headed and uh, ultimately meets his, his kind of horrible demise one of the greatest endings to a horror movie of all time so the synopsis for the movie overall is pretty much what it says here. Um, in the first couple of minutes of this movie, we have a kind of professor, academic guy, played by Donald Sutherland, um, in his lovely kind of manor house in England. He's married to the, the beautiful Julie Christie. They've got two kids, uh, a boy and a girl. The girl is out playing in a red kind of raincoat out by the pond. And we get all these phenomenal images of, of, of water and reflection of, of of glass breaking, of smashed mirrors. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a bit of religion in here. Baptism, being born from water. Um, we have all this going on and we have uh, the, the young girl herself, uh, Christine, falls into the water. And this premonition that Donald Sutherland's character of John gets and runs out and finds his daughter has drowned in a pond and we, we kind of jump forward in time to Julie Christie's Laura character and Donald Sutherland's John character now trying to rekindle the relationship post her daughter dying in, uh, in Venice out for work and what we find out is, like I say, there is a couple of different things going on in the movie. The, we have their relationship trying to kind of connect back together, but they're in different stages. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like a movie like Antichrist, which obviously borrows heavily from Don't Look Now. But we have, you know, John's character trying to be very rational about things and, and kind of, the you know, if we go to a nice country and we change the scenery and all the rest, you know, this will this will get us back and sorts. And and Laura just like, being the heart of the movie, so to speak, you know, if, if John Baxter is the, the the brain, the head of the movie, then like, Julie Christie's Laura Baxter is the heart of the movie. Um, the, the inability to let go of the memory of her daughter and longing longing to, to you know to, to be back with her or hear from her 
and we have these two sisters, uh, one of which is blind. Uh, it's Heather, and Wendy's the, the, the sister that kind of communicates for her. And uh, Wendy starts to believe that she's getting messages from her daughter from beyond the grave, and they're trying to heed this warning about not going after her, not trying to find her. So you have this happening in the movie as well. This is kind of, this is pushing the story forward. As well as all these stories about this killing that's happening, this serial killer in the background. Um, meanwhile, we have John and Laura in Venice seeing the reflection of their daughter, this red raincoat running against the water, which mirrors shots from the beginning of the movie. It's, it's very, very well done. And I would, I would say that in classic Nicholas Rose style, the way this movie is shot is, you know, it's kind of hyper-stylized, but at the same time, it's not a linear telling of the story. We jump around back and forward in time quite a bit through the telling of the story. Something happens and we see flashbacks and then flash-forwards. and It's all there. It's all in the movie um, all the way through. And he likes to play with them as well as this kind of dreamlike woozy environment that you're in and the way that the movie's shot. What we also have is this idea in the movie that... You know, John himself being the rational academic man he is actually contains a bit of psychic ability himself. This is how he knew his daughter was drowning by the signs he saw in the house that day. And he's closing his sight off to it. So the warnings which his wife is trying to give him, the warnings that the daughter's trying to give beyond the grave uh, are not reaching him because he refuses to believe. Um, refuses to believe, although he thinks he's seeing her around the city and this red jacket running about the place. You have a masterclass in cinematography in this movie. I mean, Venice is a very beautiful city. It's a very old city. And you, the combination of the, the two, this beautiful architecture and this very, you know, it's a, a, a city that is devoid of colour. You know, it is, it's, you know, it's a, a city with a giant canal that runs through it. So it's greys and greens and, and kind of earthy tones um, and these flashes of colour mostly relating to the red is to evoke those images that we saw at the beginning you know the, the red jacket running about the place um, worn by the door we, we get like flashes of colour that evoke these these jumps in time backwards or forwards these premonitions which Donald Sutherland's character is so close to that he doesn't want to, to, to believe in as the story unfolds, um, the warnings become more uh, pronounced. Uh, and Laura seeks them out more and more as John moves further away from his wife's advice. It's almost as if the city's tearing their relationship apart. Uh, we will talk about the sex scene because we kind of have to, but we'll do that later on, kind of post this synopsis or, or kind of more detailed plot. But ultimately, the final warning is put out by these sisters that, you know, John is not seeing his daughter, his daughter is not alive and he needs to stop doing what he's doing, the path that he's following. Um, John ultimately thinks he finally does see his daughter running around, he sees the red matte coat running about the place, chases after um, uh, in this very dreamlike, really trippy, really weird sequence, uh, finally tracks who he thinks is his daughter down to the edge and when he spins the you know, the person around wearing the coat. It's revealed to be the serial killer, who is this very small, kind of troll-like looking woman with a blade who who stabs him to death. Um, you know, who kills him. 
Um, we, you know, this is the this is the reveal in this movie. That this is who the serial killer is. This is why he's been seeing her run about the city so much. This is why the daughter has been sending messages from potentially from beyond the grave to say, "Don't you know? Pursue me. Don't seek me. Uh, don't follow the path that you're going." Even though Donald Sutherland does, he ultimately does it. Uh, trying to be rational, um, ultimately ends up dead. It's a shocking reveal. One of the greatest reveals in horror cinema history. Um, it's one that I still think gets me every time. Uh, in a lot of respects, this movie reminds me... Well, my reaction to it is reminded very, very similar to The Wicker Man. And I believe for the longest period of time, it was double-billed with The Wicker Man, which to me is just a weird fucking head trip of a combination. You imagine going to see a double-bill of The Wicker Man and don't look now. Dear God Almighty. Um, your brain would be absolutely fucked at the end of it. So, so that aspect. Like I say, there is a sex scene. It's a very famous sex scene. It's a famous sex scene. There's some rumours swirl about it in that maybe Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland actually did have sex. The reason that's flung around in that way as a, a comment is that it's maybe one of the best sex scenes ever filmed um, in that it does actually look like they are like a married couple in love. Um, there's something very real about it, something very realistic. It's not this, you know, angled shots and perfect pics and all this sort of stuff you, you get. And now some people will say that it's a bit graphic and you see a bit too much. Um, I would probably argue against it and, and say it's part of cinema and grow up and stop being stop being a kid about these things and just accept it for what it is. Um, it's a beautifully shot scene. Uh, by two actors that are are in an uncomfortable position who are, you know, creating maybe one of the most realistic scenes uh, of lovemaking shot on camera. So there you go. Um, so yeah, that happens in this movie. But I think the movie's strength lies in the layers that Ro, uh, Rose weaves. Like I say before, this has multiple layers and it's jumping throughout time. Um, he specifically lays out the plot of the movie in the first couple of minutes. It's all there. And then echoes it as mirrored reflections of that. Once again, using mirrors and reflections. Um, later on in the movie, that echo back to what you're seeing. It's this great character study. This wonderful look under the microscope of grief, of trauma, of love, um, of loss, that I think few movies can get one of those aspects as well as Don't Look Now gets all of them. You spend time with these characters, you feel their pain. Um, I think, you know, like I say, as an adult, as you grow up, when you have kids, you, your view of movies change. Um, like anything with kind of kid trauma and all the rest, you know, it can have a, a, an effect on you where, you know, 10 years before, if you don't have kids, you'd be fine with it. Um, and this movie hits me because of that because I'd like I don't know how I would cope if that happened to me, um, and I see what they're trying to do and I, I get behind it and I'm willing good things to happen to them just like I'm willing a helicopter to come over the skyline and rescue Edward Woodward's character and the Wicker Man, um, you know or I, I kind of hope that things will turn out all right for you know Mia Farrow and uh, Rosemary's baby. I kind of hope that you know she does become a good mother and maybe the child that she has doesn't become Satan and kills the world. You know I, I've got all these things that I hope that happen post credits in movies um, that that just don't. And you know I really kind of hope that 
the way the movie swung out has that effect on other people as well that you're really rooting for this couple even though they're tragically wounded and nothing good's going to happen um, let's talk about Pino Dinaggio uh, the score for this movie is absolutely incredible now I am a big fan of Pino Dinaggio you should know this ladies and gents because I talk about Brian De Palma all the fucking time um, and De Palma and Dinaggio great partnership uh, like have given us some of the most wonderful scores um, against movies of all time the score for Don't Look Now is amazing it's this big massive orchestral wounded experience um, that at times against the backdrop of Venice evoke like chills down my spine um, if you've ever listened to Dinaggio's stuff away from the movies he has a, a great way of creating scores for movies that work independently a lot of scores you need the movie to make it work um, Dinaggio's stuff always seems to work really well away from it as well as with it and Don't Look Now is no exception to that uh, the Dinaggio score is phenomenal it, you know, it works incredibly well um, even down to the kind of childlike piano performance at the beginning of the movie which I, I haven't done a, a deep dive in this one but I'd be surprised if a kid didn't play it because it sims like a kid playing it Um it's kind of haunting theme that travels throughout the movie itself. So you have amazing cinematography. Uh, you have Nicholas Roji's ability to weave time in this non-linear aspect, mixing sim designs, these trippy dreamlike qualities, and an ability to boldly, in the first five minutes of his movie, tell you exactly what the movie's about and where it's going and then deliver on that in the rest of the movie. You have phenomenal performances, Donald Sutherland and one of his best, Julie Christie, delivering the goods here as well, um, against this beautiful city and this wonderful mystery that unfolds, um, a phenomenal score, and one of the greatest, like I say, horror reveals of all time is a masterpiece of a movie. It's an absolute masterpiece that works decade on decade in different ways for me. I can't wait till I get in my 40s and watch this movie again and see how that changes. See if I take it on in a different light from a different point of view. I hope I do. I hope I do because that's where cinema gets exciting for me. I want a movie that always plays exactly the same way to me. I want a movie that grows with me through time. That's what makes a movie a classic. That's what makes a movie endure. And few movies do that. Um, few movies are, are crafted in such a way that they really transcend the time in which you watch them. And they grow with you as you grow as an individual. And Don't Look Now does do that. And it does it very, very well. Nicholas Rogers was a, an incredible filmmaker. I'd be lying if I said I'd seen everything the guy had ever directed. But I've seen most of them, more than 75%. And even in the movies that I didn't particularly enjoy the narrative, I enjoyed the way the films were crafted and brought together. A, a guy who was at the forefront of British cinema and a guy with without whom you don't have this bevy of really interesting directors like Peter Strickland or even... Um, you know, I like a Ben Wheatley. Interestingly enough, when I watched that movie Possum uh, by Matthew Holmes recently, there are elements in that that evoke this like a really dark, twisted narrative that at times had a dreamlike jumping quality 
and the and the kind of cinematography and time and the way it's delivered, which also evoked Don't Look Now. So I mean, its impact is huge and strong and pronounced in the horror genre, and will continue on. Um, long, long, long after, uh, and, and rightly so. Incredible fucking movie, absolutely love it. Uh, yeah, and hopefully, if you've not checked it out, you go and check it out. If you've not checked it out in a while, now's the time to check it out in light of uh, of the loss of the great man. And I look forward to what you think of it. And let me know on the Facebook group page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash T Putts Cast. Right, I'm taking my final break. When I come back, I'm closing out the show and I'm doing it right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. You've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been In Reverence, episode number 12, looking at Nicholas Rogie's 1973 movie Don't Look Now. Stone Cold Classic, that movie is an absolute Stone Cold Classic. There is a multitude of ways to check out podcasts under the stairs as always. I say come across and check us out on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the feed, that way you get the shows as and when they drop and access to the entire back catalogue of T Putts content. But don't stop there, leave us a rating and a review. Ratings are super important. The more of them we get, if it's five stars for example, the higher up the iTunes charts are pushed for people to find our show when they're searching for horror podcast content. Also, leave us a review, it's your words to new listeners' eyes. You tell them why you like the show, you never know, they might like that too. Um, Also do a little bit of word of mouth, that's super important. We in the horror community know the power of word of mouth, so utilise it and tell someone about the show and see if they come across and check it out. You can also check the show out on Stitcher Smart Radio, SoundCloud, Google Play and the TuneIn app. You can visit our website, it's tputzcast.com. You can click the merch tab there or go direct to the merch page. Um, it's tputzcast.bigcartel.com. You can visit our Facebook pages. Uh, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast to go to our group page. It's where a lot of the community interaction is. We post tons of stuff over there. We chat about our shows, movies that are upcoming, polls, memes, posters, the works over on that page. Uh, If you want to take part in things like live streams then you should go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash tputzcast, that's where the Thursday Thursdays happen, live streams, it's connected to our Instagram and our merch page as well. You can interact with me on the twin prongs of social media sexiness, Instagram and Twitter both can be followed at tputzcast. So there we go. That is our In Reverence episode down. I return on Thursday for Movie Club listener reviews. You have until Wednesday, two days left, ladies and gents, to get your review in for Mask of the Red Death to feature on that show. Please don't delay and get them in just now. But until then, whatever you are, whatever the time zone is and whatever you're up to in this big bad world of ours, please take care of yourselves out there. So can we please broadcasting live from under the stairs and I am signing off. (laughs) 